Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see a bit of sunshine this morning, just for a little while. Yeah. Yes, Acts 24. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defence. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing, I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. He said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Well, 
Who doesn't love a good courtroom drama? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you're of the black and white TV era, then maybe it was Perry Mason or the adaptation of the book To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, if you're younger, maybe it was the movie A Few Good Men or uh, The Practice. Uh, maybe if you're even younger, maybe the uh, Netflix series Suits. Uh, either way, these stories have the usual traits of a dramatic story but what happens is that the drama is amplified because, put simply, you could go to jail for the rest of your life or you could end up losing a lot of money or in some cases even the death penalty. But one thing is clear, in courtroom dramas you need a good legal representative. The Apostle Paul has been headed for a Roman court for a few chapters now. He's on his way to court and now he's there. It heightens the drama in the book of Acts. Pete Charles explained the previous chapter for us. That was a few weeks ago now. Uh, we had Easter in the middle. Um, and Pete pointed out that Paul had God on his side. Pete quoted the Eurythmics song, Don't Mess With a Missionary Man. Don't know if you remember that. Uh, well, there's no theme song today, but one line does come to mind uh, from The Cruel Sea, better get a lawyer, son. You better get a real good one. And put simply, Paul has a good legal counsellor because he has God in his corner at work for his defence, helping him to deal with a high-pressure situation. Understanding Paul's experience can help us for when the pressure is on, for when the questions are coming at us, and we're not sure how to respond to them. From parents to children, from bosses to employees to retirees, we're often faced with questions about how a Christian should respond in a high-pressure situation. When someone comes looking to accuse, someone comes to make trouble for you, Someone comes to destroy your reputation and make trouble for the gospel in the process. Well, Paul's response is an example to us all because he's in one of the trickiest situations of all. He's on trial for his very life. And what makes it so exemplary is that he shows us how we must keep coming back to the gospel, both in the way we think about our situation and in the way we talk to others about our situation. In every difficulty we face, we must keep coming back to the good news of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us to reassure us and also in the way we witness. So two planks. The gospel is important for us and our identity, our reassurance, and then it's also important in how we talk and how we act. Okay, like the TV shows suggest, courtrooms are dramatic places. I happen to have spent a lot of time in court. Uh, let me reassure you it was as part of work. Um, court matters are serious. Some of you have had to uh, deal with that firsthand. I once saw a man sent to jail because he failed to turn up at the right time at court. Courtrooms are serious places. 
he was told his case would be heard after the lunch break, and so he went off for a long lunch, not realising that uh, it was a shorter lunch break than, um, than he might have otherwise thought. Uh, when the court resumed, he wasn't there, and the magistrate convicted him in his absence and issued a warrant for his arrest. He turned up later that afternoon, and no, he didn't go in front of the judge. He went straight to jail for three days until the judge had time to hear his excuse and his case. Courtrooms are serious business. That's why you don't muck around in court. It's why uh, if you violate the law, you can expect a serious penalty. Courtrooms are serious and even much more pressure in the courtroom of Acts 24 because, two reasons, the death penalty was a possibility. The death penalty was far more common in that court and because political factors were more at play in Acts 24, the judges were also the district governors. Having to hand down sentences in application of the law, but also having to appease whatever political leanings were in, act, uh, in force at that time. This is what we find in Acts 24 when we look at court proceedings. From verse 1 to 9, the trial begins in the Caesarean courtroom under Felix, who's also the governor, who's also acting as judge. Let's pick up the case from verse 5, where the lawyer Tertullus says, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He, that's Paul, is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Now there's a good lawyer. How stinging his words must have been. Imagine how Paul felt to be called a troublemaker. Actually, troublemaker is a nice way of putting it. The word can also mean public enemy, a public menace, or even a plague on society. No one wants to be called a plague, that's for sure. And Tertullus has a particular strategy in mind. What Tertullus wants to do is he wants to get Paul condemned and executed. He's angling for the death penalty, but he's also walk, walking a fine line because the Jews have their own court, but their court doesn't hand out the death penalty. So what Tertullus is trying to do is make this case of so much importance that it would earn the death penalty, but not over an argument that the judge might say, oh, this is something for the Jewish court to handle. And if it turns out that the argument is just about religion, just about uh, a matter of interpreting the Jewish law, then the Roman court will just kick it out the charges will be dropped and the Roman judge will say, just do it yourself. But that won't have the death penalty. And that's what the Jews are chasing for Paul. So difficult. They've got to try and make sure that it meets the criteria of a Roman court for the death penalty and it doesn't turn into just a squabble over religion. 
but actually that's what it is. So, Tertullus's strategy is to convince the judge, Felix, that Paul's case is not about religion, that actually he's a menace, a plague, an enemy of the state, public enemy number one, an agitator of riots throughout the Roman world, and a ringleader of a sect that was previously declared unlawful. If Tertullus can convince Felix that Paul is an enemy of the state, then the Jews can use that Roman law to achieve their goal of Paul's execution. This strategy has been used before. Is it ringing any memory bells? It's the same strategy the Jewish leaders used for Jesus. Tertullus is pointing out to Felix that Paul is just like the other ringleader of this sect, Jesus. We've just spent some time considering Easter, so you might be familiar with the story of Jesus. Jesus was arrested and brought before a Jewish court where his charge was claiming to be God. But because they sought the death penalty, the Jewish court moved the matter into the Roman court And the claim was that he was setting himself up as a rival king to Caesar, claiming to run another earthly kingdom. And therefore, as a treasonous rival to Caesar, he was deserving of the death penalty. There's no doubt that Jesus claimed to be a king, but not as a rival king to supplant Caesar on earth, No, Jesus wasn't trying to claim an earthly kingdom. He was claiming something far more significant. Jesus was, in fact, claiming to be God. And this is worth thinking about because if you're not familiar with this idea, this is a life-changing concept. Jesus was claiming to be God. Jesus was a great teacher. Yes, but he wasn't just a great teacher. Jesus had demonstrated time and time that he had the credentials of God, the power of God, power over creation to control the wind and the waves, power over sickness and disease, knowledge of people's thoughts and knowledge of the past and of the future and control over that. Jesus claimed to be one with God the Father and Jesus even took on the same name, I am a name that is only ever used to name God, Jesus took that on for himself. So Jesus was taken to court too, where Jesus' enemies wanted him to die and Jesus allowed that to happen through an amazing sacrifice which changed the course of history. I spoke a little bit about that on Good Friday. Jesus' historic death solves the problem that has plagued uh, plagued humanity I gave away the answer. Since Adam and Eve, the problem of sin. Your sin and mine would be a death sentence for us. But Jesus took the death penalty for us in place of us and our sin. His sacrificial gift is now ours to claim and all we need to do is claim it. This, my friends, is what's known as the gospel and it has major implications for what's happening here. The gospel's impact on Acts 24, which we're in, is twofold. First, it hints at the outcome of the court case. 
It's almost comic that the Jewish leaders would be angling for the death penalty here when it worked so poorly for them last time. So ignorant of the fact that the last time they killed the ringleader of this sect, it didn't work out as they had hoped because when Jesus was crucified, he rose from the dead and his followers grew and went on to tell the story even more boldly. For some reason, Tertullus and the Jewish leaders think that it'll work this time. And Acts 24, therefore, is a little echo of the crucifixion story. The Gospel's second impact here is to remind us that God's perfect plan is irresistible and no human can stop it. It's futile to try to stop God because if Jesus' death could be turned into victory, then the religious leaders really have no way no effective way of stopping God's plan at all. One of their own had previously told them to leave the Christians alone because, as he put it, if this plan is just of human origin, it'll just dwindle away and die. But if this plan is from God and you try and fight it, you're going to find yourselves fighting against God and that is not a good place to be in. 30 years or so since Jesus' death, Acts 24 presents another situation where the execution or the threat of execution is not enough to stop God's plan. The religious leaders hope to crush this breakaway religion. But as we'll see, that very action brings yet another opportunity to share the gospel. Paul, therefore, can be confident of God's perfect plan, reassured of an inheritance which can never perish, spoil or fade. Nothing can get in the way of God's plan for him. And so we read on to see Paul's defence in this story. It's a case study for how we can respond because it bears all the great elements of a bold witness for Christ based on the gospel. Paul shows the appropriate courtesy to the court in verse 10, which is a good tip. But then verse 11, he goes on to deny the charges. But Paul doesn't waste much more time on the charges themselves. Paul's legal argument takes a courageous turn. He cuts straight to the heart of the matter, the spiritual conflict. Let's look at verse 14 and on. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets and I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Have you ever been caught up in a trick question, an intellectual argument? And you've had to remain silent because you've just thought you can't compete. Paul shows you the way. Avoid the petty arguments. Avoid the intellectual trickery and cut straight to the heart of the matter, which here is the spiritual issue. Paul does this in a remarkable way. He's asked about 
his political involvement in a seditious and treasonous faction and what evidence does he have to avoid being killed? And his answer refers to the eternal God who raises people from the dead. Paul is accused of instigating a riot but he glosses over the riot and instead he cuts to the chase, I'm really on trial here because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Because I believe death is not the end. He uses his courtroom opportunity to speak about the spiritual issue, about the most important thing, to speak about the gospel. The motivation behind Paul's argument is this. If the gospel is life-changing and belief in the gospel is the most important thing in life, then why waste my time talking about anything else, even if I'm on trial? Why get caught up in petty arguments when there's only one thing that should matter, which is, do you believe? Whether you're a judge or a doctor or a teacher or a retiree, or a child, there's only one thing that matters. Do you believe that Jesus is your saviour? Do you believe that Jesus can raise you from death and that Jesus offers you eternal life in God's family? In the heavenly courtroom, will Jesus be on your side or against you? Your answer to the offer of Jesus is much more important than any intellectual argument that you might get caught up in. More important than any other question you might consider. If you put your trust in Jesus, that's going to determine how you live the rest of your life. Because you're already included in God's family, therefore. You're already Safe from death. Death has no power over you. If you put your trust in Jesus, you are free to serve God and share the good news, no matter what accusations people make against you. Because nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, regardless of the judgment of any human court or any human opinion. That's the motivation of the gospel. In Paul's argument. But actually there's a second benefit to Paul's strategy. Did you notice? It's gospel based but there is a legal implication to what he's trying to say. If Governor Felix gets the idea that this is a religious squabble, not so much about riots and sedition but actually about an argument over religious matters, then Governor Felix is likely to kick the case out and Paul will be spared from death. And so, by cutting to the spiritual heart of the matter, Paul has actually benefited his defence. Paul is saying to the Roman judge that this is a religious argument, not something for the courts to get involved in. Masterstroke by Paul there. He had a good lawyer. He had a real good one. As God was his counsellor, guiding him in what to say. But as we read further into the chapter, we see that there was more pressure on Paul than just the courtroom drama. From verse 22, we begin to see that there's more going on outside the court. 
we see a contrast between Paul's integrity and the corruption of his judge. We pick it up from verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Understanding some of the history behind Acts 24 is helpful in understanding this interaction. If you want more information on these characters, they're not just made up in the Bible, they're actually characters of history, and the historian Josephus devotes quite a bit of time in his history book, The Antiquities. It turns out the characters here make married at first sight look like child's play. Felix was married three times. His first two wives were named Drusilla, which is a pretty good idea, I reckon, save you some um, embarrassing uh, discussions. Um, But the Drusilla here in Acts was his second wife. She was already married when they met, but Felix managed to convince Drusilla that she should leave her husband and come join him. Drusilla bore Felix a son, and that son later died in the volcanic eruption of Vesuvius, uh, possibly adding to Felix's feelings that God was against him and his life choices. Uh, Even now, though, before the eruption, Felix is sitting as judge of this legal contest between Paul and the religious leaders, but behind the scenes, Felix knows He is not above reproach. Felix would have been acutely aware of his own faults, his own shortcomings and his feelings of inadequacy as a judge. Drusilla, meanwhile, his wife, is the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. She's the sister of Bernice and also the sister of Herod Agrippa II, who we'll meet next chapter. But for now, it's enough to see that Felix's inner circle is marked by adultery, marked by nepotism, marked potentially even by incest. Furthermore, Josephus tells us in that book, The Antiquities, that Felix is well known for taking bribes. And Josephus even points to this chapter of Acts as part of that evidence. Felix is not a man of integrity. Felix is not a man of integrity. He's a hypocrite. Even more ironic that he's laid out to be the judge here. He is already tainted by guilt and corruption himself. But Paul is held up in sharp contrast. Put simply, it was open to Felix to just release Paul because these charges have nothing to do with Roman law. It's all about Jewish law. Just kick it out. But instead, Felix holds out in the hope that Paul will grease the wheels of justice with a bit of a bribe. Paul does no such thing. And verse 26 says, Felix sends for Paul quite often, hoping and hoping that this will happen. You can imagine that the temptation was ever present for Paul. 
but Paul stands firm. Can you imagine how those conversations between Paul and Felix might have played out? We could imagine Paul arriving in chains and Felix reminding him how long he's been in custody. Mm, It's been 340 days so far, Paul. How's it going for you? Don't forget, I've got the power to release you. Are you uncomfortable? Isn't it time that we sorted this out? And how are your friends going? I bet they're missing you. And how about your benefactors, your financial sponsors? Gee, they'd be sick of paying for your food and you're not doing much missionary work. Wouldn't you be better off out? Better off out serving your people where you're most needed? Maybe your financial sponsors would agree to a little missionary contribution so that you can actually get back out to doing what you're supposed to do and I can make that happen. Maybe that's how the conversation went. That Felix wanted to help Paul get out of jail quicker and just consider this bribe as a ministry expense. Perhaps Felix could justify it, but for Paul, it was out of the question. And the reason that Paul does not succumb to this temptation is because Paul strives to be as noble in private as he is in public. Paul strives to be as noble in private as he is in public because Paul's ultimate boss is boss of both. Paul's ultimate boss is God, not a man. And while Paul devotes his life to God, it's not just part of his life. It's not just his working life. It's not just his private life. It's not just his family life. Paul is devoting his whole life to his ultimate boss, God. Paul has just argued in court that he's trustworthy. He's said it in public. He really had better live up to that in private. It would be poor form of Paul to speak that way in public and then succumb to the temptation in private. And this is an example for us. That the gospel should cause us to synchronise our public and private lives. Let me say it again. The gospel should cause us to synchronise our public and private lives because we accept that our boss is boss over the whole life, not just part of it. Uh, As Paul says elsewhere, serving your master not just while his eyes are on you, but also when no one's looking. There's two tests for that that I want to put to you today. Would you feel comfortable bringing Christ into every part of your life? him accompanying you on a bit of a day trip through your life? Would you feel comfortable? Well, you don't mind Christ meeting with you at church. You could have him sitting there in the pews next to you. But uh, what if he then made a house call? What if uh, Jesus then dropped in on you while you were at work? Uh, What if uh, he looked at your browser history? Where is it that your life is not in sync between public and private life. Uh, uh, The fact is, I have to tell you, God does 
drop in on you. God does know this already, and yet maybe we try and delude ourselves. Our lives lay exposed before him. The second test is, is there anyone that you'd know, is there anyone who'd rather... Let me try that again. Second point, is there anyone that you'd rather didn't know you were a Christian? Because, you know, you're not acting as an ambassador for Christ in the way you treat them. Is there anyone that you'd rather just didn't know that you were a Christian? I used to go to church with a businessman who said uh, he was happy to follow Christ in his private life, but business is business, he said. Business is hardball. You don't get anywhere by being sympathetic or soft. You've got to play hardball if you hope to survive in business. And so he led a double life, hoping his business associates didn't know that he was Christian because then they'd get the wrong idea about Christ and yet also never telling his associates about his faith lest they associate Jesus with corruption. Uh, Do you have similar parts of your life where it would be shameful to admit to others that you're Christian? Perhaps you have a certain group of people that you use foul language with. Uh, Perhaps you have a certain group of people that you join with them in their sin. Perhaps you have one standard for the church and another standard for your home life. Stop compartmentalising the gospel in your life and synchronise your public and private life and live with integrity. This is made possible by the gospel and for the gospel because we give up our whole life to the king who gave up his life for us. Stop living a double life and you'll find it easier to share the gospel with people around you who see that you are different. By living that way, as Paul did, puts you at risk of earthly suffering. There's a good chance you'll lose some of your friends. Uh, There may be a chance that you will lose that promotion. There may be a chance that you lose some of what you did consider to be entertainment or enjoyment. And that brings us to verse 27, the last verse, which speaks a lot to us. It's written in the narrative to boil down two years of Paul's life into the space of just one verse. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Paul has been in prison for two years because he showed integrity and synchronised his public and private life. Paul has been in prison for two years, but still not prepared to give up his integrity to get out of jail. Uh, We're reminded of Paul's resolution earlier in Acts 21, where he said, I am ready not only to be bound, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, here, that's being put to the test. Paul remains in jail, but it's not because he had no other option. Paul already knows that bribery will set him free and yet he's stuck in a prison cell while judges and kings continue to eat and drink and be merry and ignore him. 
and yet Paul is prepared to maintain his integrity. Paul continues to do what's right, even though it means a painful weight and missing out on all of life's good trimmings. But Paul has patience in God's timing and this verse prompts us to have patience in God's perfect timing. Now, patience can be a difficult thing to master. Ask any parent, ask any farmer, Children, ask your parents to explain dial-up internet. There's an example in patience. Ask your grandparents about travelling overseas before there were aeroplanes. Patience is difficult, but few things come close to illustrating patience than what we'll remember tomorrow, Anzac Day. Those brave men willing to risk their lives, yes, but demonstrating so much patience long before that. Months on a crowded ship, followed by weeks of training in the desert, followed by more weeks of waiting long before an enemy position was even sighted. And that's not to mention the patience of their wives and families going months without knowing, waiting for their return. But the Anzacs maintained the belief that their present suffering and difficulty would be outweighed by the delayed benefit that was to come, potentially a benefit even for future generations they hadn't met yet. And we know that was true for Paul, that his present sufferings would be outweighed by the benefit that was to come. In Philippians, Paul says... I eagerly expect and hope that I will no, in no way be ashamed and that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether in my difficult life or in my death. This was a man who lived a lot of his Christian life on death row, in harm's way, and yet he models patience for us as we endure life's difficulties for the sake of the gospel. So like the Anzacs and like Paul, we should be prepared to be uncomfortable for what we believe in. Patience, that endurance that comes despite difficult circumstances, is one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith. As we continue to stand up for truth, as we continue to stand up for real life in a crooked and depraved generation. When you're in a high-pressure situation, you want a good lawyer. And that's the essence of the gospel. We want and need a good representative, and we have that in Jesus. Jesus not only shows us how to live, but when the pressure got too much for us, Jesus steps in and gives his life up for ours. That makes it worth taking Jesus into your life and giving him your full trust. And not just giving him your trust for an hour on Sundays, but synchronising your public and private lives because you now put your trust in the ultimate boss who rules over it all. And when you trust him, you'll display the three qualities that we see in this passage. First, 
the courage to speak spiritually like Paul in that Caesarean courtroom. Second, integrity in your public and private dealings. And third, patience in God's perfect timing. Being prepared to be uncomfortable in order to grow God's kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your work in Jesus on the cross. Lord, we pray that it will have implications for our lives and our whole lives. That we would, as our life proceeds, devote more and more of our life to you. Stripping away every part that is not of you, is not beneficial of your kingdom. Lord, give us the courage to do this as we look to the example of Paul and people like him, but ultimately to the example of Christ, who did not hide anything from you, but gave his whole life for you. And in his name we pray. Amen.